Hebrews chapter 2. It's fitting that we sang a mission hymn, going to all the world, facing a, a, a task yet unfinished. Because my uh, introduction this evening, I want to talk a little bit about Hudson Taylor. Now, Hudson Taylor was the probably the most successful uh, missionary uh, to China in the 19th century. He, in fact, has been called the English Chinaman. Now, most of the English missionaries who came to China uh, maintained their English or their Western culture, dress, and way of life. Uh, they lived in the coastal cities. They maintained all of the comforts of Western luxury, uh, and they actually looked down on Chinese peasants, particularly with an air of superiority. And so they stayed on the coast and ignored the vast interior regions in the country of China. Well, the Chinese weren't foolish. They, they, they knew what was going on, and they rejected this message largely because they rejected the foreign influence, the, the, uh, the seeming attempt to turn Chinamen into Westerners, not just into Christians. But Hudson Taylor came to China, and he grew to love and appreciate and respect the Chinese culture, and he was convinced that the only way he was going to reach Chinese people with the gospel of Jesus Christ is to become as much like a Chinaman as he possibly could. And so he dressed and he lived like the Chinese people he was seeking to evangelize. He had a tremendous burden for the interior of China. And so uh, in time he founded the China Inland Mission. But he devoted his life to preaching the gospel to the Chinese people living inland from those more comfortable coastal cities. Now it's interesting because Hudson Taylor was criticized by many British missionaries. They despised him. Uh, they thought he was uh, uh, being crass. Uh, they, they thought he was uh, uh, improper. But it's interesting that the Chinese people appreciated the fact that he was willing to become like one of them. Not just like the prosperous Chinese living in the coastal cities, but he embraced the dress and the lifestyle of those peasants, those very poor Chinese people living in the interior of the nation. And so they were willing to listen to his message. And by the end of his life, through the ministry of the China Inland Mission, which Hudson Taylor founded, there were over 125,000 Chinese believers. Now, I dare say that life work is very fruitful. Now, there were a lot of factors that contributed to his fruitful missionary labors, this unrelenting zeal and love that he had for the Chinese people, the incredible personal sacrifices he was willing to make, and they were tremendous, but also his, his willingness to identify with Chinese, particularly Chinese peasants. Well, our, our text this evening, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews is directing our attention once more to the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly his, his zeal and love for lost sinners, the incredible personal sacrifice he made for us, but also his willingness to identify with us, with fallen sinful humanity. If you were here last Sunday morning, you, we, we, we were in the first uh, five verses or first four verses of Hebrews 2 where the question in verse 3 is asked, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Well, this evening, the author of Hebrews continues and he wants to spell out for us how great that salvation truly is by pointing to us the greatness of our Savior, the founder of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. So please read as I begin verse 5. Read along. Hebrews 2 verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, 
of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, or made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord for us. Now, I want you to notice that verse 5 begins with this word, for, which means he's not starting a new discussion or a new topic. He is drawing a conclusion. He's, he's, he's expanding on what's gone before. He's elaborating on just how great this salvation is that comes to us by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, not only how great our salvation is, but how great our Savior is. There are four points that I'll draw out of this passage, first of all, and they kind of group around creation, fall, incarnation, exaltation. And we're used to saying creation, fall, redemption. But here in this text, we'll, uh, fo- the focus seems to be the creation, how God chose to crown mere men with glory and honor created in his image. Secondly, the fall, that glory of man was grievously tarnished or compromised. Thirdly, the incarnation, the Lord Jesus identified with sinful men that he might restore us to God. And then finally, exaltation, the Lord Jesus was crowned with glory and honor for or because of his great sacrifice. So let's unpack this together. First of all, at at creation, God chose to crown mere men with glory and honor. Look at verse 5 and following. It wasn't angels God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. Now we think, oh, that's Jesus. Well, he's actually not, he's not talking about Jesus yet. He will in a minute. But he's still talking about men. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, God's original design in creation was that all things would be under subjection to men who were his, the, the crown of his creation, created in his image. The, the, the point, this first point the author is going to make for us is that we were given a position of dignity higher even than that of the angels. Angels were not entrusted with the rule of God's creation. Men were. And so that's why he begins with, it was not to angels God subjected the world to come. And again, we might expect him to say no to Jesus because that's kind of the theme of what we're looking at here. But what he says is it's, 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 he goes back to creation and shows how it was to men, mere men, he entrusted with the dominion of his creation. He cites Psalm 8, as I said a moment. And the, the, the theme of the psalm is the dignity God has bestowed upon men when he created the world. He, the psalmist goes out, and, it's, and, and, and the, 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 the subheading tells us it's, it's David. So David goes out in the night sky, and he looks up in the heavens, and he sees the moon and the stars, and, and, and just, uh, again, without light pollution like we have today, it's a spectacular view. Maybe he saw the Milky Way. But he, he, he saw just amazing uh, evidence of the work of God's fingers, the moon and stars which he set in place. And it made him feel like he was as insignificant as a speck of dust. And so he says, what is man that you would be mindful of or the son of man that you would care for him? 
He, is, he senses his smallness, his insignificance. Uh, he, he, he says it's amazing that God would even notice us or care about us. But even more astounding than that, he has crowned us with glory and honor, which is the basis of our human dignity. We're created in God's image. He crowned man with glory and honor, and he entrusted man with dominion over his creation. We are given stewardship of this creation. If you remember, uh, Adam was told at the garden to fill the earth and subdue it and, and to rule over all of the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea over God's entire creation to subdue it and to rule over it. And what we read here is that this uh, dominion is so absolute that he says in verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Again, I don't believe he's talking about Jesus yet, and I'll show you why in just a moment. But before we consider what that particular statement means, I want, I want us to point out a parallelism that we find here in verse 6. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? He's not talking about two different groups. It's very common in Hebrew poetry to repeat the very same thought with different words. The, the, the verbs are the same, that you would be mindful, that you would care for. Same thing. What is man, the son of man? And remember, the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew uh, phrase son of often reflects character or nature. So Barnabas, the son of encouragement. James and John were the sons of thunder. It, it characterized who they are. So to speak of man as the son of man emphasizes his mortality, emphasizes his humanity. And this designation is a loaded term. It takes on more freight as we get closer to the New Testament. In Ezekiel chapter, or excuse me, in the book of Ezekiel, God addresses Ezekiel over and over, son of man, son of man, son of man, 70 or excuse me, 93 times he calls Ezekiel son of man. And I think in part he's doing that to emphasize the, the, the distance between God and man, your humanity, God's sovereignty. Uh, it's interesting that he does not do that with all the other prophets, but he certainly does with Ezekiel. But then he, he, uh, he does something really amazing in Daniel 7. And I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel 7 because I want you to see this with your eyes as well as hear it with your ears. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is having a vision that he describes for us. And in Daniel 7 verse 13 he says, in, I saw in the night visions, he's having a number of visions, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Now, one like a son of man here means someone in human form. That's what the emphasis is. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This isn't talking about the creation mandate. This isn't talking about what God is entrusting to all men because of creation. This is talking about the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This is a messianic prophecy. And in fact, in, in, in Jesus' ministry, he more frequently referred to himself as the Son of Man than any other title. He never went around saying, I'm the Messiah, but he constantly referred to him as the Son of Man. 
kind of in that third person. If any of y'all remember when Bob Dole was running for president, he would never say I. He would always say Bob Dole this, Bob Dole that. And people thought that was weird, okay? I don't know if people thought Jesus was weird when he didn't say I, although he did many times. But when he, he simply referred to himself as the Son of Man over and over again. In Matthew, we have 30 recorded instances. In all the Gospels, we have 80 instances where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And again, it's not a Son of Man. In Daniel, it says, one like a Son of Man, one having human appearance. Jesus comes and says, I am the Son of Man. That, that term, is, he has employed it with messianic significance. But it's significant because it emphasizes his humanity. He's the son of man. He is in the image and the nature of man, even though he is God, the Messiah. He appeared in human form, in human likeness. He's true humanity, yet true deity, the God-man. So we find at creation, God uh, chose to bestow his, uh, on men, his creation, glory and honor and dominion. But secondly, at the fall, we find that this glory and this dominion were grievously compromised or tarnished. Look at verse 8, back in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 8 says uh, that, uh, that God has put everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Wow, that's an absolute statement. But then we see this pivot. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Again, we're still talking about mortal man. And he's saying, we don't see God's created design being fulfilled in men. Uh, Now, again, we were created in the image of God. We were given this creation mandate, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it, exercise dominion over the entire world. Uh, Theologians speak of Adam as the vice regent of God in this creation. And it was a sacred stewardship. In verse 8, it says there was nothing outside of his control. But something terrible happened because Adam and Eve sinned. They chose to rebel and disobey God. The serpent deceived them when he convinced them, if you eat of this fruit that God forbade you to eat, you'll become like God. And they thought, wow, being like God would really be amazing, wouldn't it? Uh, the only thing they gained that God had that they didn't already have was the knowledge of good and evil. But what they forfeited was unspeakable. The entire world came under the curse due to sin. Sin entered the world and death through sin and it spread to the entire created order. Romans 8 tells us that the entire creation was subjected to futility and the bondage of corruption. So this original design where God created this peaceful, harmonious world where everything was good, everything was very good, where man was created in the image of God who enjoyed perfect fellowship with God, who was reflecting God's holiness, his holy character and his glory. All that was devastatedly lost. If you look around today, that's not what we see, is it? We see chaos and we see warfare and crime and hatred and strife and division. We see every form of unrestrained wickedness and men insisting that it's okay because every man does what's right in his own eyes and he convinces himself that what Scripture says is evil is actually good and what Scripture says is good is actually evil. 
We see disease and death and COVID and cancer. And things seem to be going from bad to worse. There was a, a, an amazing poem. I, I learned this poem in high school. Um, it was written in 1919 by William Butler Yeats. Now, 1919, if you know anything about history, it's the year after World War I ended. Supposedly the war to end all wars. But people were absolutely shell-shocked at the horrific uh, suffering brought on by global total war. The idea that there could be that kind of inhumanity was beyond anyone's imagination. And so in the, in the wake of that great war, William Butler Yeats writes this poem called The Second Coming. And I'll read just a portion. He says, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. That sounds a whole lot like 2023, doesn't it? It's amazingly relevant. That's 104 years ago. But that's been the condition in the world in which we live for ages. So the writer of Hebrews says, we don't see yet all things under his uh, our subjection to man's control. And, and the efforts that we make to bring things under control and many times seem just to make things worse. Uh, in any case, they tend oftentimes to be fruitless. We have alarmists, you know, crying about climate change and famine and population explosion. And there is famine. And, and the climate is changing in some degree, but I don't, I don't, I don't buy into all of that stuff. As you may, I don't, but... but there, there are changes, no question, but whether we're causing it by driving our cars and raising cows, that's another question. But anyway, there are real crises, those crises. There are hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and floods. There are famines. There is enormous human suffering in this world that is yet under the curse, and we can't control it. We're supposed to be able to walk out in nature and enjoy the glory of God's creation, but we have to look out for things like snakes that might bite us or ticks that might attach themselves to us or wild animals that could attack us or poison ivy that can infect us. That makes you want to stay inside sometimes. Years ago, I went to the Grand Canyon. It was amazing. You know what the number one danger from nature is in the Grand Canyon? They have a little sign, right, as you go to the trailhead. Watch out for the squirrels because they have rabies. Who would expect a rabid squirrel? Right? Uh, we don't see all things under God's control. This, there's, there's clear evidence everywhere we look, even as we try to insulate ourselves from these dangers, there's evidence that, that uh, the original design has been broken. And man has failed to live up to his original purpose because of his sin. So we've talked about uh, God's design at creation. We've talked about the damage that was caused by the fall. Now, ordinarily, we talk about creation, fall, redemption. And, and, and in a sense, that is where we're going, but we're going there through the incarnation, where the Lord Jesus identified with sinful men in order that he might restore us to God. Look at the middle of verse 8 once again. He says, uh, we don't see, uh, excuse me, 
in verse, uh, middle of verse 8, now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So we have this contrast set up. We, we don't see at present everything subject to men, but we do see the Lord Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Again, he's referring back to that promise that would come that is at Psalm 8. Now he's taking Psalm 8 and he's applying it to the Lord Jesus. Everything that was supposed to be true about man, being crowned with glory and honor and, and all things, uh, all that dominion, that is true about the Lord Jesus Christ. At his incarnation, the Son of Man stepped into humanity. The creator became part of his creation. The one who sustains all things by, the powerful, uh, by his own powerful word needed that sustenance from his father in heaven and was subjected to such weakness as hunger and fatigue. A storm so violent, his, his, his disciples thought they would, they would perish in the boat and Jesus was so tired he was asleep. He subjected himself to every weakness and vulnerability of humanity except for the guilt of sin. He became sin in our place, but he himself never sinned. And when Jesus took to himself human flesh, what we read here is true. For a little time, he was made lower than the angels. Uh, Theologians speak of his incarnation, the time on earth, as his humiliation as he underwent all manner of indignities and the absence of his glory. He rightfully deserved to rule and to reign in the glory of heaven, but he laid that aside and he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. He took on the form of a servant and said, I always obey my Father. And Jesus alone fulfilled the purpose for which God created man. Adam failed to do so. The law comes saying, do this and live, and not a single one of us has done this. We've all broken and violated God's law in countless ways and deserve death, but Jesus did it all. He obeyed it perfectly, and he fulfilled all the purposes for which we are created. What Adam failed to do, Jesus did perfectly. Now, again, in verse 10, look at verse 10, if you would, for just a moment. It says, verse 10, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, again, emphasizing Jesus is the creator and sustainer of everything. And it was fitting that he, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so, and we'll, we'll touch on, or we'll study that next week. But the author is, is emphasizing the wonder and the purpose of the incarnation. He who, by whom all things, who created all things, by whom all things exist, emphasizes his deity. And bringing many sons to glory emphasizes his redemption. Should make the founder of our salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering, emphasizing his incarnation and his humiliation. By the, by the way, that word founder of salvation 
is uh, translated by the, by the King James as the author of, found, of our salvation. And Hebrews 12 too, the author and finisher or the founder and perfecter of our faith is the way ESV translates it. Uh, I like the word author. And in fact, I, I was thinking that maybe I would take that Greek word that is translated author and just say, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. So to keep from saying the author, I'm just going to use this Greek word and give that in his name. I decided not to, but it was, an, it was a thought. It was kind of a difficult name to pronounce. So anyhow, Tom Schreiner in commenting on this says, the writer in the subsequent verses quotes Psalm 8 that we've looked at already, verses 4 to 6, showing that the rule over the world wasn't given to angels but to human beings. He then argues that this rule has become a reality in Jesus, the human being par excellence. A little French pronunciation there. Jesus is the perfect man, the God man. He fulfilled that which we failed to fulfill. And the redemption which he accomplished through his own blood reconciled us to God. Our relationship with God was broken because of our sin. We despised his authority. We were alienated from God. We were hostile to his law, hostile to his rule in our lives. Uh, uh, We were indignant that he would dare to try to tell us how to live and pronounce judgment upon us when we failed to do so. And so we justly deserve his wrath. But Jesus paid the penalty that we incurred by our sin. He paid the penalty that removed the, the uh, he paid the price that removed the penalty that, that, uh, that removed also the hostility between man and God. He reconciled us to God. So this is the great salvation, verse 3 refers to, to which we must not neglect. But in accomplishing a salvation, he also accomplished something very truly amazing. He overturned the effects of the curse. He restores to man the position of glory and honor. He restores to man that, that initial dominion that was given to man at creation. Now, we don't see it yet. We're in between that already and that not yet of eternity. But in the new heaven and in the new earth, we will reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Romans 8, that golden chain of salvation, those whom he foreknew, meaning he set his heart upon us before time. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of God. And those whom he predestined, he called, meaning he called us to himself. He gave us life and drew us with cords of love irresistibly to himself, giving us life in Christ. And whom he called, he justified. He declared us righteous in his sight by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And whom he justified, he also glorified meaning perfected, and we share in the glory of Jesus Christ. And for all time, we will be crowned with glory and honor as we reign with the Lord Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth. And over and over in the scriptures in the New Testament, we see this promise of ruling and reigning with Christ. And here's the incredible thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, chapter, or chapter 6, verse 3, he says, we're going to judge angels. Now, he's not, he's not, Paul's not developing the angelology here. He's simply saying, uh, why are you going to court against one another? If, 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 if we're going to judge angels in the world to come, aren't you adequate to judge one another within the church and solve your problems? And it's interesting how many important statements are made simply to support a main point in the scripture. But that important statement is, we're going to judge angels. 
That's astounding. Uh, I don't have any idea what that looks like, by the way. If you don't come to me and say, what does that mean? I don't know. Except that we're going to judge angels. Does that mean we're going to judge the fallen angels? Uh, probably so. What about the others? I don't know. But it's a pretty astounding statement. And it's all purchased for us in the redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ by his death. Now, at present, we do not see that yet. Our dominion is not fulfilled. But in the new heaven and the new earth, the curse will be utterly and completely lifted. And that glory and that honor and that dominion will be fully realized. So, at creation, that is who man is. For a time, a little lower than the angels, but eventually we're going to judge angels. At the fall, that was compromised. It was sacrificed. It was lost. In the incarnation of our Savior, he restores us to God and to that hope of future glory. And then finally, in his exaltation, the Lord Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of his great sacrifice. Look at verse 9. Don't miss this. It says, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That's about his incarnation. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. As the Son of Man, Jesus fulfilled the original design God had for all mankind. He was made lower than the angels for a time. That emphasized his humiliation as he lived upon the earth. But now he's crowned with glory and honor. He's exalted above the angels in heaven. And there's a connection here between his glory and honor and his suffering and his death. What is the connection? If you look at the text, it's the word because. It's a causal connection. He's crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering of death. I want you to think this, is, this, this, this requires some real thought and concentration. Wasn't Jesus from all eternity crowned with glory and honor? From all eternity before he ever uh, took on human flesh, was he not infinitely and eternally glorious in heaven? And the answer is absolutely yes. But for a time he laid aside that glory. In fact, in John 17 in the high priestly prayer, I've talked about this recently, he said, Father, restore to me the glory I had with you before the world began. So before the world began, he had glory with the Father. And John 1, 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. But he humbled himself, Revelation, or excuse me, Philippians 2 tells us, and he became obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. Now I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 5, if you would. We just studied the book of Revelation. And if you recall, chapter 4 is all heaven, all the creatures of heaven are bowing and worshiping God the Father who created all things. Chapter 5, all the, the creatures of heaven, the, the angels and the living creatures and the elders are bowing down and worshiping the Lord Jesus. And I want you to see what they say, the song of heaven sung to Christ in Roman, Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. It says, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, the scroll of God's judgments. For you were slain. Why are you worthy? Because you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You did what was necessary to lift the curse. And those who rejected you, you are worthy to pour those 
judgments out upon them. You've made them, those whom you purchased, a kingdom and priests to our God. They shall reign on the earth. That's us. And then jump down to verse 12 again. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. The glorious song sung to the Lord Jesus Christ was rooted or the result of, it was a response to his death as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, he was already infinite in glory because of who he is. In Hebrews 1, we read that he was the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He was infinite in glory because of what he did at creation. The world was created through him. He sustains all things in creation through his powerful word. He is glorious because he made purification for sins. Verse 3 and 4 in chapter 1 says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's his exaltation. Having become as, become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. For a time he was made a little lower than the angels, but now he is exalted above the angels after his mission on earth was complete. Now, there seems to be four phases of the manifestation of the glory of Jesus. Now, when I say this, I talked about this Wednesday night, I am not trying to come up with some new and novel theological formulation here, okay? Uh, I say this with with some great care because I don't want to do anything that could suggest I believe God changes. I believe absolutely in the immutability of God. He does not change. However, from all eternity, the glory of Jesus was manifested in heaven. That pre-incarnate glory, he prays in John 17, 5, that God would give back to him. So we find his glory manifested before the incarnation. But then his glory is veiled, secondly, during the incarnation. For a little while, he was made lower than the angels. He had no, uh, no, no appearance that would draw people to him, Isaiah 53 tells us. His glory was laid aside. It was veiled for a time, even though it was rightly his. And now, presently, he, he is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death that he gave on our part, our, our behalf. He is the lamb who was slain, who redeemed men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. But the time's going to come when his glory will be so revealed that every eye will see and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see his glory now with the eye of faith. The day will come when all God's creation will see it, and none will be able to hide or ignore it. So there, in Scripture, we have these four manifestations or these four periods of the manifestation of the glory of Christ. Pre-incarnate glory, the, the veiling of his glory during the incarnation, the, the, the heavenly uh, manifestation of his glory because he is the lamb who was slain, the response, the glory he receives. You, he's infinite in glory. How can you add more glory to him? You can't, but before the incarnation, you couldn't say he's the lamb who was slain. But now, he is, and he receives glory for that, and the time again will come when his glory will be manifested for all to see. This eternal, this infinite glory of God in the person of Jesus manifested different ways in different times, but we don't see that taking place right now with our eyes. It's something with the eye of faith. And we also don't see man 
exercising dominion the way that God originally intended for us to do that. But we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. We see all things having been placed under his feet. Now, not with our physical eyes. Oh, for the day, right? That we'll see with our eyes. But with the eye of faith, he has illumined our minds in the knowledge of Christ. And we see Jesus. But I want you to see here in this text, it tells us that his glory is the reward of his sacrifice. He tasted death for everyone. I don't believe everyone means universal atonement. There are those who believe that Jesus died for all men in some um, uh, unsubstantial way to offer salvation or provide salvation for anybody who might, uh, might come to him. It's there for everyone. Now, the invitation is clearly to everyone. But whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's a limited group of people. And whom he foreknew and predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. He justified them through the death of his son. And Jesus died not to provide salvation, but to purchase the salvation of those who are predestined according to the wisdom and the will of God. In Ephesians 1, it says, we are, uh, are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless in his sight. It's not chosen uh, and we're going to heaven no matter how we live. No. Chosen, redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, being conformed to his image. And if that's not happening, Hebrews tells us without holiness, nobody will see the Lord. Hebrews warns us over and over again, don't just think you can believe with head knowledge but neglect this great salvation. Everyone does not always mean every single person in existence. And uh, a lot of times in, in seminary class, they'll say all does not always mean all. Uh, all Jerusalem saw it. That doesn't mean everybody was outside watching. Uh, and in, in Scripture, when it speaks of all, many times it is limited by the scope of what's being talked about. And that's what's happening here. All who are going to be redeemed were redeemed by Jesus Christ. People from every tribe and language and people and nation. And the way he did that is he tasted death. Now, when we use the word taste, uh, would you like some of this dessert? Well, give me a taste. That means you give me a small amount. Okay, that's not what this means. But if you come out and you say, I have tasted the most glorious dessert imaginable. You're not talking about the quantity of what you ate, you're talking about I experienced it. In fact, in Webster's, uh, Merriam-Webster, it, it, it gives those first uh, definitions of uh, a small quantity, but then it says also it can mean to perceive or recognize as if by the sense of taste or further to, be, to become acquainted by experience. Jesus experienced death in our place. And it wasn't just a small taste. He drank the very outpouring of the wrath of God for all who would ever trust in him. He didn't merely read about death. He didn't merely study about death. He didn't merely hear about death. He didn't merely witness death. He experienced death himself in our place for us to pay the penalty for our sin. And that sacrifice is the manifestation of God's grace to people who don't deserve it, to undeserving sinners. We utterly failed to live up to that creative design that God had from the beginning. And instead of God leaving us to that just condemnation, which we all deserve, he sent his son who 
took to himself human flesh and experienced all that we experience. He identified with us so that in some senses we can identify with him and know we can trust him. And he made purification for our sins by taking the punishment we deserved upon himself, by satisfying all the requirements of divine justice. And he freely offers that salvation to anyone who will come. Now, next Sunday morning, we're going to go to the final part of this chapter, Lord willing. And it's really an amazing section in the book of Hebrews. Where in verse 10, as I read earlier, it was fitting that God would make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. That is a loaded statement that's going to raise a lot of questions. What do you mean? Made perfect through suffering. And how is that fitting? Well, Lord willing, we'll seek to answer those questions next week. But what I want you to, to, to think about is that this, this text we looked at this evening is the response to the question, how should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The greatness of the salvation is, 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 is perceived or is understood when we understand the greatness of our Savior. Jesus is called the founder or the author of our salvation. Christian, you, you name the name of Christ. You're seeking to live for him. You are seeking to trust in him. He is your Lord and your Savior. Do you see what a great Savior you have? Do you recognize this is the grace of God for you? When you sing amazing grace, are you amazed by his grace? Or, or are we sort of used to it? Do we walk outside and we look at the sky and, and it's glorious and, we're, and we'd say, God, how is it that you would be mindful of us, that you would care for us, that you would become one of us and you would redeem us by the, per, the, 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 the death of your own dear son? How is it? May God give us grace to be amazed once again at our great Savior. Now, some of you may say, I can't see Jesus. It says you see, you see Jesus. I don't. And I can't and I haven't. And I don't know how to believe in him. Maybe if I could see him, I would believe in him. Well, when God the Holy Spirit does a work of grace in a person's heart, he opens our blind eyes, we say. He, he, uh, the, the catechism says he enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. He gives light where there's darkness. He gives life even though we're dead in our sins and trespasses. And he gives us that gift of faith. He says, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden. I will give you rest. Whoever comes to me, I'll never, ever drive away. All you need to do is see what a great Savior God has given to us. See what a great Savior Jesus is for us. And then believe that promise and come to him in repenting of sins, putting your faith in him because he will welcome all who come to him in repentance and faith. In just a minute, Wesley's going to come and lead us in our closing hymn, crown him with many crowns. And I, I encourage you always to think about a hymn. Uh, what is the hymn saying? But who's it saying to? Who is this? Who am I singing to as I sing this? I'll give you a hint. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee. Speak to yourself. You're telling yourself, crown him with the glory and honor he deserves. But every verse 
It's talking about the glory of Jesus manifested more greatly, more fully in his death, in his sacrifice, the Lord of love who rose, the the, the, the king who rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. It's all about the glory of Jesus revealed in his redemption. So let us sing with all our hearts. Sing to our hearts to give glory to our great God.